Act Two of The Provoked Wife, a comedy by John Van Bruch. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Act Two, Scene, St. James Park. Enter Lady Fanciful and Mademoiselle. Well, I vow, mademoiselle, I'm strangely impatient to know who this confident fellow is. Enter Hartfree. Look, there's Hartfree. But sure, it can't be him. He's a professed woman-hater. Yet who knows what my wicked eyes may have done. Il nous approche, madame. Yes, tis he. Now he will be most intolerably cavalier, though he should be in love with me. Madame, I'm your humble servant. I perceive you have more humility and good nature than I thought you had. What you attribute to humility and good nature, sir, may perhaps be only due to curiosity. I had a mind to know who twas had the ill manners enough to write that letter. Throwing him his letter. Well, and now I hope you are satisfied. I am so, sir. Good-bye, Tier. Nay, hold there. Though you have done your business, I hadn't done mine. By your ladyship's leave, we must have one moment's prattle together. Have you a mind to be the prettiest woman about town, or not? How she stares upon me. What? <laughs> This passes for an impertinent question with you now, because you think you are so already? Pray, sir, let me ask you a question in my turn. By what right do you pretend to examine me? By the same right that the strong govern the weak, because I have you in my power. For you cannot get so quickly to your coach, but I shall have time enough to make you hear everything. I have to say. These are strange liberties you take, Mr. Hartfree. They are so, madam, but there's no help for it, for know that I have a design upon you. Upon me, sir? Yes, and one that will turn to your glory and my comfort, if you will but be a little wiser than you used to be. Very well, sir. Let me see. Your vanity, madam, I take to be about some eight degrees higher than any woman's in the town. Let t'other be who she will, and my indifference is naturally about the same pitch. Now, could you find the way to turn this indifference into fire and flames? Methinks your vanity ought to be satisfied, and this perhaps you might bring about upon pretty reasonable terms. And pray, at what rate would this indifference be bought off, if one should have so depraved an appetite to desire it? Why, madam, to drive a Quaker's bargain, and make but one word with you, if I do part with it, you must lay me down your affectation. My affectation, sir! Why, I ask you nothing but what you may very well spare. You grow rude, sir. Come, mademoiselle, tis high time to be gone. Allons, allons, allons. Hartfree, stopping them. Nay, 
you may as well stand still, for hear me you shall, walk which way you please. What mean you, sir? I mean to tell you that you are the most ungrateful woman upon earth. Ungrateful? To whom? To nature. Why, what has nature done for me? Which you have undone by art. It made you handsome. It gave you beauty to a miracle, a shape without a fault, wit enough to make them relish, and so turned you loose to your own discretion, which has made such work with you that you are become the pity of our sex and the jest of your own. There is not a feature in your face, but you have found the way to teach it some affected convulsion. Your feet, your hands, your very fingers' ends are directed never to move without some ridiculous air or other, and your language is a suitable trumpet to draw people's eyes upon the rare show. Mademoiselle aside, Est-ce qu'on fait l'amour en Angleterre comme ça? Lady Fanciful aside, Now I could cry for madness, but that I know he'd laugh at me for it. Now, did you hate me for telling you the truth? But that's because you don't believe it is so. For were you once convinced of that, you'd reform for your own sake. But tis as hard to persuade a woman to quit anything that makes her ridiculous, as tis to prevail with a poet to see a fault in his own play. Every circumstance of nice breeding must needs appear ridiculous to one who has so natural an antipathy to good manners. But suppose I could find the means to convince you that the whole world is of my opinion, and that those who flatter and commend you do it to no other intent but to make you persevere in your folly, that they may continue in their mirth. Sir, though you and all the world you talk of should be so imperfectly officious as to think to persuade me I don't know how to behave myself, I should still have charity enough for my own understanding to believe myself in the right, and all you in the wrong. Le voilà mort. Exuant Lady Fanciful and Mademoiselle, heart-free, gazing after her. There her single clapper has published the sense of the whole sex. Well, this once I have endeavored to wash the blackmoor white, but henceforward I'll sooner undertake to teach sincerity to a courtier, generosity to a usurer, honesty to a lawyer, nay, humility to a divine. Then discretion to a woman I see has once set her heart upon playing the fool. Enter Constant. Morrow, Constant. Good morrow, Jack. What are you doing here this morning? Doing? Yes, if thou canst. Why, I have been endeavouring to persuade my lady fanciful that she is the foolishest woman about town. A pretty endeavour, truly. I have told her, in as plain English as I could speak, both what the town says of her, and what I think of her. In short, 
I have used her as an absolute king would do Magna Carta. And how does she take it? As children do pills. Bite them, but can't swallow them. But, prithee, what has put it into your head of all mankind to turn reformer? Why, one thing was, the morning hung upon my hands. I did not know what to do with myself, and another was, as little as I care for women, I could not see with patience one that heaven had taken such wondrous pains about, be so very industrious to make herself the jack-pudding of the creation. Well, now could I almost wish to see my cruel mistress make the self-same use of what heaven has done for her, that I might be cured of a disease that makes me so very uneasy, for love, love is the devil, heart-free. And why do you let the devil govern you? Because I have more flesh and blood than grace and self-denial. My dear, dear mistress, Steth, that so genteel a woman should be a saint when religion's out of fashion. Nay, she's much in the wrong, truly. But who knows how far time and good example may prevail? Oh, they may have played their parts in vain already. Tis now two years since that damned fellow, her husband, invited me to his wedding, and there was the first time I saw that charming woman, whom I have loved ever since, more than e'er a martyr did his soul. But she is cold, my friend, still cold as the northern star. So are all women by nature, which makes them so willing to be warmed. Oh, don't profane the sex. Prithee, think them all angels for her sake, for she's virtuous even to a fault. A lover's head is a good, accountable thing, truly. He adores his mistress for being virtuous, and yet is very angry with her because she won't be lewd. Well, the only relief I expect in my misery is to see thee some day or other as deeply engaged as myself, which will force me to be merry in the midst of all my misfortunes. That day will never come. Be assured, Ned, not but that I can pass a night with a woman, and for the time, perhaps, make myself as good sport as you can do. Nay, I can court a woman, too. Call her nymph, angel, goddess, what you please. But here's the difference, twixt you and I. I persuade a woman she's an angel, and she persuades you she's one. Prithee! Let me tell you how I avoid falling in love. That which serves me for prevention may chance to serve you for a cure. Well, use the ladies moderately, then, and I'll hear you. That using them moderately undoes us all. But I'll use them justly, that you ought to be satisfied with. I always consider a woman 
not as the tailor, the shoemaker, the tire woman, the seamstress, and, which is more than all that, the poet makes her. But I consider her as pure nature has contrived her, and that more strictly than I should have done our old grandmother Eve, had I seen her naked in the garden. For I consider her turned inside out, her heart well examined. I find there pride, vanity, covetousness, indiscretion, but above all things, malice. Plots eternally a-forging to destroy one another's reputations, and is honestly to change the levity of men's tongues with the scandal. Hourly debates how to make poor gentlemen in love with them, with no other intent, but to use them like dogs when they have done. A constant desire of doing more mischief, and an everlasting war waged against truth and good nature. Very well, sir, an admirable composition, truly. Then, for her outside, I consider it merely as an outside. She's a thin, tiffany covering over just such stuff as you and I are made on. As for her motion, her mien, her airs, and all those tricks, I know they affect you mightily. If you should see your mistress at a coronation, dragging her peacock's train with all her state and insolence about her, "'twould strike you with all the awful thoughts "'that heaven itself could pretend to from you, "'whereas I turn the whole matter into a jest, "'and suppose her strutting in the self-same stately manner, "'with nothing on her but her stays "'and her under-scanty-quilted petticoat. "'Hold thy profane tongue, for I'll hear no more.' "'What? You'll love on, then?' Yes, to eternity. Yet you have no hopes at all? None. Nay, the resolution may be discreet enough. Perhaps you have found out some new philosophy, that love, like a virtue, is its own reward. So you and your mistress will be as well content at a distance as others that have less learning are in coming together. No, but if she should prove kind at last, my dear heart-free... Embracing him. Nay, prithee, don't take me for your mistress, for lovers are very troublesome. Well, who knows what time may do? And just now he was sure time could do nothing. Yet not one kind glance in two years is somewhat strange. Not strange at all. She don't like you. That's all the business. Prithee, don't distract me. Nay, you are a good, handsome young fellow. She might use you better. Come, will you go see her? Perhaps she may have changed her mind. There's some hopes as long as she's a woman. Oh, tis in vain to visit her. Sometimes to get a sight of her, I visit that beast, her husband. But she certainly finds some pretense to quit the room as soon as I enter. 
"'Tis much she don't tell him you have made love to her, too, "'for that's another good-natured thing usual amongst women, "'in which they have several ends. "'Sometimes tis to recommend their virtue, "'that they may be lewd with the greater security. "'Sometimes tis to make their husbands fight, "'in hopes they may be killed, "'when their affairs require it should be so. "'But most commonly, "'tis to engage two men in a quarrel, "'that they may have the credit of being fought for. "'And if the lover's killed in the business, "'they cry, "'Poor fellow, he had ill luck!' "'And so they go to cards. "'Thy injuries to women are not to be forgiven. "'Look to it, if ever thou dost fall into their hands.' They can't use me worse than they do you that speak well of em. Oh, ho! here comes the knight. Enter Sir John Brute. Your humble servant, Sir John. Servant, sir. How does all your family? Pox of my family. How dost your lady? I haven't seen her abroad a good while. Do? I don't know how she does, not I. She was well enough yesterday. I ain't been home tonight. What? Were you out of town? Out of town? No, I was drinking. You are a true Englishman. Don't know your own happiness. If I were married to such a woman, I would not be from her a night for all the wine in France. Not from her. Oons, what a time should a man have of that? Why, there's no division, I hope. No, but there's a conjunction, and that's worse. A pox of the parson. Why the plague don't you two marry? I fancy I look like the devil to you. Why, you don't think you have horns, do you? No... I believe my wife's religion will keep her honest. And what will make her keep her religion? Persecution, and therefore she shall have it. Have a care, knight. Women are tender things. And yet, methinks, tis a hard matter to break their hearts. Fie, fie, you have one of the best wives in the world. And yet, you seem the most uneasy husband. Best wives? No woman's well enough. She has no voice that I know of, but she's a wife. And damn a wife. If I were married to a hogshead of claret, matrimony would make me hate it. Why did you marry, then? You were old enough to know your own mind. Why did I marry? I married because I had a mind to lie with her, and she would not let me. Why did you not ravish her? Yes, and so have hedged myself in to forty quarrels with her relations, besides buying my pardon. But more than all that, you must know, I was afraid of being damned in those days. For I kept sneaking cowardly company, fellows that went to church, 
said grace to their meat, and had not the least tincture of quality about them. But I think you are got into a better gang now. Soon, sir, my lord Rake and I are hand in glove. I believe that we may get our bones broke together tonight. Have you a mind to share a frolic? Not I, truly. My talent lies to softer exercises. What, a down bed and a strumpet? A pox of venery, I say. Will you come and drink with me this afternoon? I can't drink today, but we'll come and sit an hour with you, if you will. Puh, pox, sit an hour. Why can't you drink? Because I'm to see my mistress. Who's that? Why, do you use to tell? Yes. So won't I. Why? Because tis a secret. Would my wife knew it, to be no secret long. Why do you think she can't keep a secret? No more than she can keep Lent. Prithee, tell it her to try, Constant. No, prithee don't, that I mayn't be plagued with it. I'll hold you a guinea you don't make her tell it you. I'll hold you a guinea I do. Which way? Why, I'll beg her not to tell it me. Nay, if anything does it, that will. But do you think, sir? Own, sir, I think a woman and a secret are the two impertinentest themes in the universe. Therefore, pray let's hear no more of my wife nor your mistress. Damn them both with all my heart, and everything else that dangles a petticoat. Except for generous whores, with Betty Sands at the head of them, who are drunk with my Lord Rake and I ten times a fortnight. Exit Sir John. Here's a dainty fellow for you, and the veriest coward too. But his usage of his wife makes me ready to stab the villain. Lovers are short-sighted. All their senses run into that of feeling. This proceeding of his is the only thing on earth can make your fortune. If anything can prevail with her to accept of a gallant, tis his ill usage of her. For women will do more for revenge than they'll do for the gospel. Prithee, take heart. I have great hopes for you. And since I can't bring you quite off of her, I'll endeavor to bring you quite on. For a whining lover is the damnedest companion upon earth. My dear friend, flatter me a little more with these hopes, for whilst they prevail, I have heaven within me, and could melt with joy. Pray, no melting yet. Let things go farther first. This afternoon, perhaps, we shall make some advance. In the meanwhile, let's go dine at Lockett's, and let hope get you a stomach. Exuant. Scene, Lady Fanciful's house. Enter Lady Fanciful and Mademoiselle. Did you ever see anything so importune, Mademoiselle? 
Indeed, madame, to say the truth, he want little good breeding. Good breeding? He wants to be cane, mademoiselle, an insolent fellow. And yet, let me expose my weakness. Tis the only man on earth I could resolve to dispense my favours on. Were he but a fine gentleman? Well, did men but know how deep an impression a fine gentleman makes in a lady's heart, they would reduce all their studies to that of good breeding alone. Enter Cornet. Madam, here's Mr. Treble. He has brought home the verses your ladyship made, and gave him to set. Oh, let him come in by all means. Now, mademoiselle, I am going to be unspeakably happy. Enter Treble. So, Mr. Treble, you have set my little dialogue? Yes, madam, and I hope your ladyship will be pleased with it. Oh, no doubt on it, for really, Mr. Treble, you set all things to a wonder. But your music is in particular heavenly, when you have my words to clothe in it. Your words themselves, madam, have so much music in them, they inspire me. Nay, now you make me blush, Mr. Treble, but pray, let's hear what you've done. You shall, madam. A song to be sung by a man and a woman. Ah, lovely nymph, the world's on fire. Veil, veil those cruel eyes. The world may then in flames expire, and boast that so it dies. But when all mortals are destroyed, who then shall sing your praise? Those who are fit to be employed, the gods shall altars raise. How does your ladyship like it, madam? Rapture, rapture, Mr. Treble. I'm all rapture. Oh, wit and art. What power have you when joined? I must needs tell you the birth of this little dialogue. Mr. Treble, its father was a dream, and its mother was the moon. I dreamed that by a unanimous vote I was chosen queen of that pale world, and that the first time I appeared upon my throne, all my subjects fell in love with me. Just when I waked, seeing pen, ink, and paper lie idle upon the table, I slid into my morning gown and writ this impromptu. So I guess the dialogue, madam, is supposed to be between your majesty and your first minister of state. Just. He, as minister, advises me to trouble my head about the welfare of my subjects, which I, as sovereign, find a very impertinent proposal. But is the town so dull, Mr. Treble, it affords us never another new song? Madam, I have one in my pocket, came out but yesterday, if your ladyship pleases to let Mrs. Pipe sing it. By all means, here, Pipe, make what music you can of this song here. Not an angel dwells above, half so fair as her I love, heaven knows how she'll receive me. 
If she smiles, I'm blessed indeed. If she frowns, I'm quickly free. Heaven knows she never can grieve me. None can love her more than I, yet she never shall make me die. If my flame can never warm her, lasting beauty I'll adore. I shall never love her more. Cruelty will so deform her. Very well. This is Hartfree's poetry without question. Oh, won't your ladyship please to sing yourself this morning? Oh, Lord, Mr. Treble, my cold is still so barbarous to refuse me that pleasure. <laughs> I'm very sorry for it, madam. Methinks all mankind should turn physicians for the cure on't. Why, truly, to give mankind their due, there's few that know me but have offered their remedy. They have reason, madam, for I know nobody sings so near a cherubim as your ladyship. What I do I owe chiefly to your skill and care, Mr. Treble. People do flatter me, indeed, that I have a voice, a je ne sais quoi, in the conduct of it, that will make music of anything. And truly, I begin to believe so, since what happened t'other night? Would you think it, Mr. Treble, walking pretty late in the park, for I often walk late in the park, Mr. Treble, a whim took me to sing Chevichets, and would you believe it, next morning I had three copies of verses and six billets doux at my levy upon it. And without all dispute, you deserved as many more, madam. Are there any further commands for your ladyship's humble servant? Nothing more at this time, Mr. Treble, but I shall expect you here every morning this month to sing my little matter there to me. I'll reward you for your pains. Oh, Lord, madam. Good morrow, sweet Mr. Treble. Your ladyship's most obedient servant. Exit Treble. Enter servant. Will your ladyship please to dine yet? Yes, let him serve. Exit servant. Sure this heart-free has bewitched me, mademoiselle. You can't imagine how oddly he mixed himself in my thoughts during my rapture even now. I vow tis a thousand pities he is not more polished. Don't you think so? Madame, I think it's so great pity that if I was in your ladyship place, I take him home in my house, I lock him up in my closet, and I never let him go till I teach him everything that fine lady expect from fine gentlemen. Why, truly, I believe I should soon subdue his brutality, for without a doubt he has a strange penchant to grow fond of me, in spite of his aversion to the sex else he would never have taken so much pains about me. Lord, how proud would some poor creatures be of such a conquest! But I, alas, I don't know how to receive as favour what I take to be so infinitely my due. But what shall I do to new-mould him, mademoiselle? For till then... 
He's my utter aversion. Madame, you must laugh at him in all the places that you meet him and turn into the ridicule all he say and all he do. Why, truly, satire has ever been of wondrous use to reform ill manners. Besides, tis my particular talent to ridicule folks. I can't be severe, strangely severe, when I will, mademoiselle. Give me pen and ink. I find myself whimsical. I'll write to him. Oh, I'll let it alone and be severe upon him that way. Sitting down to write, rising up again. Yet active severity is much better than passive. Sitting down. Tis as good let alone, too. For every lash I give him, perhaps, he'll take his favour. Rising. Yet tis a thousand pities so much satire should be lost. Sitting. But if it should have a wrong effect upon him, twould distract me. Rising. Well, I must write, though, after all. Sitting. Or I'll let it alone, which is the same thing. Rising. La voilà déterminée. Exuent. End of Act Two.